Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. There is a watchman on the wall, bringing forth the written word of God to one and all. Are you getting ready? Will you stand or will you fall? Listen to the watchman on the wall. Listen to the watchman on the wall. Listen to the watchman on the wall. Rise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new day has dawned. All over the earth, men and women are arising. It's time for the sons of God to awake. It is a day of justice, recompense, Restoration, revival, and resurrection power. Your pastor of New Wine Ministries. Great to be with you today on this Thursday. It's a beautiful day here in the neighborhood. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. We are going to talk about a particular topic this morning based upon an email or a messenger text that I received uh, this morning. And it was from a very dear brother. I love him with all my heart. And uh, he's been viewing our ministry from afar. And he sent me a video of a gentleman who I have great respect for. And this particular gentleman was uh, decrying, if you will, um, out of his understanding, the feasts of the Lord. And so obviously tomorrow we're going to be celebrating the feast of Passover. We are going to be having a Seder meal. We are going to be fully engaged in uh, that's that Haggadah, that retelling of the story. And we're going to, uh, 50 days later, okay, we're going to be celebrating Shavuot. So Passover, the major feast, Shavuot, the next great feast. And then in the fall, we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, when it comes to the Feast of Passover, which we are going to celebrate tomorrow night, I met another group that celebrated it last week, 
I'm all good with that because nobody knows the perfect time, okay? And we get that when people are trying to, you know, get on board. Um, immediately after the Passover will come the beginning of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. We're going to talk about that as well. And on the third day, so yeah, Passover, the first day, the first day of unleavened bread, and then the next day uh, will be the Feast of First Fruits. So we're going to talk about the feast, why we celebrate them, why we do what they do. The gentleman I'm referring to uh, put out a, a video, and the video was all about uh, basically, anybody that celebrates the feast are in unbelief, they have an evil heart of unbelief, and somehow they haven't received the finished work of Christ on the cross, they haven't been crucified with him. And as I was listening, I was hearing, um, again, quite frankly, with all due respect, um, a lot of speculation. Uh, I, I saw a common error that people make all the time is that they build on a point and so they go so far, but they don't read the very next verse or two that would um, kind of put them into a bind with their present thinking. And that's exactly what happened in this video. So the purpose of this broadcast today is to go through the feast of the Lord from the beginning to the very end. And some of you may have already been um, you know, uh, hearers of this particular message, but it never hurts. And we're going to get into some really good stuff here. As a matter of fact, before we get going and we're waiting for people to join us, I want to just do one more thing. I've got this lined up really well. So let me, all I have to do is remember how to spell and I'll be just fine. All right. So no, I don't know how to spell. Bummer. All right, so let's go this way, and we go this way, and we go that way, and there we go that way, and then let's put that in there. All right, so <clears throat> let's get into this a little bit, and what I'm going to do is, in order to tell the true story of the Feast of the Lord, we have to go back to the very beginning, and <clears throat> we have to get to an origin, to a genesis of things, and we also have a principle out of Isaiah that we work with that the end is revealed from the beginning. And so get your Bibles out, get your pad of paper, cross-reference the scriptures. And remember, any questions that you may have, let's write them down. And, and when we open up the telephone lines, let's ask the questions. And maybe you'll come up with something that will change the perspective, okay? Uh, we're going to go with what we know right now. And uh, the message that I heard was incomplete, the one I'm refuting gently. Uh, it was a very incomplete message, and it had a lot of um, its own ideas. But I just want to stick with the word today when it comes to why we, the New Testament, the New Covenant saints, uh, who have faith in Jesus Christ as our salvation, why do we participate in the Feast of the Lord? What's the purpose? Why do we do it? And the only way to begin is to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. So let's begin there today. Genesis 1, 14. And I'm going to give you some definitions, and hopefully these definitions will clear up any misunderstandings of what people may be thinking. So it says in Genesis 1, 14, and, and by the way, what's really awesome about talking about the Feast of the Lord for a very brief moment, you take your eyes and your mind off of what's going on in the world, and we have an opportunity to get back to Scripture and look at this present um, moment as something that we can focus on and be a great blessing to. So Genesis 
And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. All right. So what are we reading here? On the fourth day of creation, God created the sun, the moon, the stars, okay? Now, on the first day of creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But that was not the sun, the moon, or the stars. I think we could all agree with that. The first day of creation, light is totally different. I believe that was when God spoke, word came out of him, and that word was made flesh. That word is the light of the world. This is Yeshua, okay? But this fourth day of creation, we know that God created, he said, let there be lights, in the plural, in the firmament of the heaven. And what was the purpose of them? Here is the purpose of the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. We see again in verse 14, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So if we look through the purpose, the word signs is the oath. It's an oath. And what an oath is, is a signal. It refers to a banner or a distinguishing mark or a remembrance. And I want you to keep that word in mind right now, remembrance. Okay, it also serves as an omen. It also serves as a warning. So a token or some kind of signal, again, uh, a flag as a beacon flag, a a monument. Um, All right, so this is what the sun, moon, and stars were to do, were to give signs upon the earth, omens, warnings, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the next thing that these sun, moon, and stars were to do, they were for seasons. And here's where I want to really concentrate and focus on the Hebrew word, for the word seasons. Now remember, mankind has not ever, has not yet been created. He's not going to be created until the sixth day. All right, so we're in the fourth day of creation. The creator of all things, and we know in the New Testament we're told that Jesus, Yeshua, created all things, and for him and by him all things were created, and without him nothing was created. So we believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were the Elohim, they were the Trinity, if you will, at the beginning of time. So at the very beginning of time, God said, we're going to do this on the fourth day of creation before man was on the earth. So what does the word seasons mean? The word seasons is the Hebrew word moed. It's a moed. And the definition And I want you to listen carefully and write this down or get the definition, yellow it out, circle it, and just pay pay special attention to this. The word moed means properly 
an appointment. All right, so put that down. It's an appointment. It also is a fixed time or season. That means it's fixed. It's a fixed time. A moed is a fixed time or a season. So it's something that endures. It's fixed. It's steady. Okay? It also refers to specifically, in the Hebrew definition, it literally says specifically, a festival. A festival. Uh, conventionally, it refers to a year. So you have, so far, what? You have an appointment. So these sun, moon, and stars are for appointments or a fixed time. All right, so we have a fixed time or season. And now we're seeing that it is specifically a festival, a festival. Okay, very good. And then we have conventionally, it means a year. Uh, by implication or what is implied, it refers to an assembly. All right, so put that down, an assembly. And you put these together, there's an appointment at a very fixed time for a festival to gather the assembly. Okay, this is all in that definition. And it means an assembly as convened for a definite purpose. Ah, so now we have a definite purpose for the assembly. So at this appointed time, this fixed time, there's going to be a festival that it, the people of God are going to assemble to, and it's a very definite purpose for the assembly. Okay? We're looking at this. We go on and we look at it, and it talks about um, technically the congregation that will assemble. By extension, it's the place of meeting, of the place of meeting. It's also a a, a signal or something as appointed beforehand. So now we have appointed sign or appointed time. And we go down, and this is where it gets really cool. It literally says now in the Hebrew definition of the Hebrew word moed, for the English word season, it's a set, solemn feast. Now think about this. So now we have a set, solemn feast feast in the definition of the word seasons. It's appointed. It's a due season. It's an appointed or set time. Now, that's a lot of definition for one word. So, again, we go back to the fourth day of creation before mankind was ever on the earth, and we have this very specific information on the fourth day, God put the sun, moon, and stars, and the purpose was for signs and seasons or omens or warnings or red alerts or beacon flag or tokens, okay, that's the word sign, and for seasons, the moed. The moed is for appointments. It is for a fixed time. It is for a festival wherein the assembly gathers together for a definite purpose during the set solemn feast. Hmm. So when you think about it, all of this is in the thought of God before man was ever on the earth. So what you're really looking at when you look at the sun, moon, and stars from God's perspective is what? A calendar. The sun, moon, stars revolve, and God knows how they work. He set them there, right? He knows the sun, moon, and stars better than anybody else. Daniel was famous for knowing 
the astrology of things, not the astrological signs. We're not getting there. No. Astronomy, uh, he understood the movement of things. He was actually teaching um, the, 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 the wise men of Babylon about the calendar of God. So there's no doubt on the fourth day of creation that we're reading in Genesis 1.14 that it was a calendar and that God had very fixed times. He had set and deliberate times for an assembly of the congregation for a very definite purpose to gather together for the feast. Why would God be thinking that if it doesn't have any enduring purpose or value? Why would God, on the fourth day of creation, create the long-lasting things that he does with the idea that it doesn't matter anymore? Okay, And somehow we get this idea that the feast of the Lord belonged to the Jewish people. We think that they belong to, you know, some, you know, mosaic law, that these feasts are under the law. These feasts existed way before the law. And that's what you need to see if you really want to open your heart to what God's word is saying about the value of the feast, why we gather together, why on a set time in the fixed economy of God, Do we gather together for a definite purpose during the feast days of the Lord? Well, it's because on the fourth day of creation, God set it up because he had purpose for it. And you're going to see this this purpose goes all the way through to the end of times, even during the millennium. All right. So I wanted to begin there. All right. Now what I would like to do is I'd look at another word. So that word moed that carries all that detail. Okay. You're going to find that word again, the Hebrew word, moed, but with a different English word. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. So we're in Leviticus 23, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel. Now, of course, this is 1,500 years later. This is, you know, way beyond the fourth day. I mean, you had Adam, and we know, let me just interject this thought, that the feast of the Lord were in operation when Adam and Eve were on the earth because their kids, um, Cain and Abel, were offering offerings to the Lord. And offerings are connected to the feast of the Lord, as you're going to see here in just a moment. So these feasts had been going on since man was on the earth. Obviously, Adam trained his sons how to celebrate the feast of the Lord. They were revealed to him. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. God explained everything to Adam. To that, there is no doubt. So when we get into Genesis chapter 3 and 4, and we see that Cain and Abel are offering offerings, well, those offerings are during the set feast days. No problem. But now we fast forward 1,500 years or so, and we read Leviticus 23.2, speak unto the children of Israel. So God kept this creation economy in the Mosaic law economy of things, if you will. And he said, speak to the children of Israel, say unto them, concerning the feasts of the Lord, not the feasts of the Jews, not the feasts of the Israelis, not the feasts of the Hebrews. The feast of the Lord. Say to them, concerning the feast of the Lord. Now, the word feast is the same exact Hebrew word, moed. 
So you click on the word feast, and there it is. It's a moed, the same exact definition. So the feast days are connected to the fourth day of creation, when God would set seasons, fixed points on the calendar, and these things were just fixed, and they would go on and on and on. And now we're reading that he is to say, he is to speak to the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. All right, well, what is this? What is a holy convocation? If the, if the, the, the signs and the seasons, and the word seasons is the moed, and then you come into the first time you, talk, you hear about the feast of the Lord, and it's the same exact Hebrew word, the moed, well, you, which you shall proclaim these feasts, to be holy convocations. What is a holy convocation? Well, the word convocation is the mikra. It's the mikra. What is a mikra? Well, it's a calling together, a sacred assembly, okay? It means something called out. So during these feasts of the Lord, God would call the children of Israel, and they would have a sacred assembly, they would be called together, they would be called out of all that they were doing in a public meeting. Now, the public meeting of the Feast of the Lord, we know what they are. It's Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits. We know it's Shavuot and the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the seven that are recorded in the Word of God, okay? So this is a public meeting. It is also a rehearsal. And so it's an assembly for a rehearsal. Okay. So in the beginning of time, on the fourth day of creation, God talks about the appointed time, the fixed time, the festival, the assembly for a definite purpose, a set solemn feast. Now we're, we see the feast is the same word as the moed, and now we know what it's for. You're to proclaim it to be holy convocation, a holy or separate convocation. Holiness means to separate yourself unto God, okay? So whatever Israel was doing, they're now learning the feast of the Lord. God gave them his feasts. He's sharing what he created on the fourth day of creation. And as they were participating, even in their Passover, their moed, right, their festival, they are rehearsing what would become a finished work. So, in other words, we know, even though this was done on the fourth day of creation and Israel carried it, but we know that it was fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Yeshua, the Lamb of God, went to the cross, sacrificed his life, shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sins. That one act of the Lamb of God was the fulfillment of 1,500 years of the Jewish economy under the law. So, there Yeshua did it, but for 1,500 years, they rehearsed it over and over and over and over and over. So someone would say, and by the way, Pentecost or Shavuot has also been fulfilled 2,000 years ago in an upper room in Jerusalem, Israel, when the Holy Spirit came out. So the Holy Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit has been upon us for 2,000 years or two millennial days. The age of Passover um, has already been fulfilled. So 2,000 years ago, both these feasts were fulfilled. So then why would we keep them? Because we don't have faith? 
because we don't believe, because we're not assured? No. The reason why we keep them, and I'm just going to get a little bit ahead of myself right now for just a moment, is what we read in 2 Peter, and I just want to begin in chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going I'm to read four verses now from one apostle. And then I could go back to Hebrews, I can go back to Timothy, but listen to what the Apostle Peter did continually in his letter to his congregation. Peter wrote several letters to the congregation of saints, and here's what he said to them in 2 Peter 1.12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Well, what is he saying here? All right, well, let's take, let's take that look. The word remembrance is, in that setting there, it's the hupomenesco, all right? And it means to cause one to remember or to bring to remembrance or recall to mind. Put in remembrance, an admonishment. And it also deals with just to remind quietly, Okay. Uh, suggest to the memory. There's a great definition right there in the Greek, to suggest to the memory. So 2,000 years ago, that feast of Passover was fulfilled when Christ, the Lamb of God, went to the cross. So then why should we keep the feast in the New Testament? So that we would suggest to our memory, so that we would be reminded, that we would remember the finished work, that we would count the value of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is there anything wrong with remembering? Not to the Apostle Peter. As a matter of fact, he says it this way in another context in 2 Peter 1.13, the very next verse, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle in his body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So all he's wanting to do is keep the saints in remembrance of things they once knew, and even though they were established in the present truth. They weren't in unbelief. They weren't lacking faith. They didn't have an evil heart of unbelief. They were, in the, they were established in the present truth of what Christ had done, but he wanted to keep them in remembrance. Second Peter 1.15 says, Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And then in 2 Peter 3, 1, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So the reason why we celebrate the feast of the Lord, number one, is that God created them on the fourth day of creation. He had a purpose for it. And it is part of the eternal purpose, as you'll see in just a moment. But it is also something that they rehearsed until the truth came. And now we're looking back at what was finished to keep ourselves in memory of what we believe and what, what we're established in. Do we forget? Not necessarily. But the feast continues to remind us. It keeps us open and aware of the value of the price of the atonement, of the shed blood, of how it consecrates us and washes us and clears our conscience from guilt, shame, and condemnation. Quite frankly, there's a lot of people that are talking some stuff 
but the blood has not yet reached the conscience to bring the cleansing and the clearing to eradicate the guilt, shame, and condemnation from the soul of the being. So there could be nothing wrong with going back and remembering and looking at these feasts that were in the fourth day of creation that are going to be showing up in the end and find a problem with it. I mean, it's not due to unbelief. It's due to faith and building the faith and remembering and remembering why. A lot of people's memories are a little bit short in the times we're living in with all the pollutants in the world and all the stuff going on. What's wrong with being stirred up in the word of God? What's wrong with being stirred up about the Lamb of God? Why not talk about Yeshua, the Lamb of God, the fulfilled prophecy and all the rehearsals? And now it's a finished work, but, you know, we have these things called anniversaries in our marriage. Why do we celebrate an anniversary? When every year, that day that you were married, it comes around and it's a memory. And I hope it's a good memory for you. Because you celebrate your anniversary with a gift and you have a card and you remember the day you were married and it brings back a flood of emotion maybe. So why not? It's not because you're, I don't believe I'm married to you. It has nothing to do with unbelief or an evil heart or a lack of faith. No, you know you're married to that person. You absolutely know you're, you're married. But you refresh it. You keep it alive. You burn the candle. You, you just kind of let it, you know, move in you again. And you, and you allow that intimacy to go deeper and deeper through the years. And this work of Christ, it's not just a one-time deal that you got at the altar one day. It's something to be valued and to be remembered throughout your entire journey. Now, let me bring you to another part of Scripture here. Okay? We were talking about the holy convocations as rehearsals. That's what the mikra, the Hebrew word for convocation is the mikra, and it is a holy convocation, and it is a, re, a rehearsal. And you know, before a wedding, they have rehearsals. They have rehearsals before a big play or a concert. They do rehearsals. You're getting ready for something. So they, in the holy convocations, were in rehearsal. You got married then. Now the marriage came 2,000 years ago on the cross, so to speak. So now we remember for 2,000 years, we're still remembering because it's our anniversary every year. And it's not because of unbelief. I know I'm married, but I, I'm refreshed and I'm reminded, and that is biblical and that is scriptural. So now we're going to move forward into keeping the feast. Why is that important? Because in the New Testament, a lot of people do this. They say, well, this is all the Old Testament. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again, and let's not stop in the earlier verses, as my friend did. He read a couple of verses, and uh, here's what he read in verse 7. He said, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And that's where the man stopped. He stopped right there. But he didn't read the next verse. Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, you can't just read one verse to try to validate a speculation out of something that you think is just man-made tradition. 
man-made tradition is a horrible thing if it offends God. But the Apostle Paul said, we gave you traditions and we expect you to keep them. That's in Thessalonians. So not all tradition is bad. And so when God creates something on the fourth day, and then the Apostle Paul tells the church, the saints at Corinth, keep the feast. Well, what does that phrase actually mean? Well, if you look at the definition, let us therefore keep the feast. It's the hurtadzo, hurtadzo, and it means to keep a feast day, celebrate a feast, to observe a festival, keep the feast. That's the Greek definition. So he's not telling the New Testament church to do away with it. He's not saying to the new covenant people that because of your unbelief, you need to go back here. No. He's saying as a new covenant people, extract from our Passover lamb the value, the benefit, the intrinsic value and meaning for your life. He wasn't telling them not to keep it. He said to keep it. But again, teachers don't bring that part in. And sometimes that can get a little frustrating. But it wasn't just in the New Testament that we were told to keep these feasts, right? We go on, and let me just read a few of these to you, because they're worthy. In Exodus 23:15, Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you in the time appointed. That's a moed. And that phrase there, time appointed, is the word moed, because that means appointed time. The appointed time of the month of Abib, which is also Nisan, which is the first month of the year. For in it you came out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. So God was saying to his people, because of what I've done and who I am, I want you to bring an offering during these feast days. Don't come before me empty. That's just a reality. Let's look at Deuteronomy 16.10. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks. So first it was unleavened bread, which is the next day after Passover, it's a seven-day feast. Now he says, keep the feast of weeks, which is the what we call Pentecost today, seven weeks of seven or 49 in the 50th day, you Shavuot. So it's known as the feast of Shavuot. So he says, keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of a free will offering at your hand, of your hand, which you shall give unto the Lord your God according as the Lord thy God has blessed you. So now we have a feast of the Lord, um, that is, first we read about unleavened bread, which is connected to Passover. Now, 50 days later, Shavuot. Keep it. This is very interesting. I want to spend a little time on 2 Corinthians chapter 30. Listen to this. This is, this is a mystery if you're ready to receive it. And there, this is 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, beginning in verse 13. And I want to get this out on the board. This is great stuff right here. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great congregation. The second month? I thought the feast of unleavened bread and Passover was in the first month. It is. What happened here? Well, this is a time of restoration. These were people that were coming out of something. So what you have to do to understand why they're going to celebrate it, let me keep reading just a little bit. 
In 2 Chronicles 30, 14, they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. All the altars for incense took they away. They cast them into the brook Kidron. So this is a revival. This is a restoration. They have been drowning in perdition. And then it says in verse 15, then they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They had forgotten to keep the feast of the Lord. That's why they were ashamed. They had lapsed into pagan worship and idolatry. And now through revival, they're coming back to an understanding. So they're doing it in the second month. Why? Why? Well, if you'll turn to the book of Numbers. And uh, I was really hoping they'd have it out here. But the book of Numbers, I know where it's at. So if you go to the book of Numbers, here's what happened. And this is the reason why they were celebrating it in the second month, which is not the right time. So I'm just going to cruise on over to Numbers chapter 9. And here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal. And I'm just going to read it from the very beginning. Numbers chapter 9, verse 1. The Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season, the Moed, in the 14th day of this month at evening when the sun sets, you shall keep it in his his appointed season. According to all the rites of it, according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall you keep it. And Moses spoke unto the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover in the first month, the 14th day of the month. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, at even at the sunset, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel. And there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man, that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And those men said unto him, we are defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back that we may not offer an offering of the Lord in his appointed season among the children of Israel? In other words, we were defiled. We couldn't keep the Passover and offer an offering to the Lord. What do we do? In verse 8, Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body or be in a journey afar off, Yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord, the 14th day of the second month. At evening, when the sun sets, they shall keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it under the morning, nor break any bone of it. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbears to keep the Passover... Even the same soul shall be cut off from among the people or his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. 
And if a stranger shall sojourn among you and will keep the Passover under the Lord according to the ordinance of the Passover in accordance to the manner thereof, so shall he do. You shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. Okay, so when we get back to Second Chronicles, the whole story is that they kept the Passover and unleavened bread on the 14th day of the second month. And the reason why is because the question came to Moses in Numbers chapter 9. How important was it for these people to celebrate God's appointed feast? Huge. What was their concern? I have got to get my offering to the Lord. We'll continue in that theme in just a little bit. Let's go a little further now, because this one is really important. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 will just begin in verse 16, okay? Start right there. And it shall come to pass. Now, this is during the millennium. If you put this chapter in context, this is during the millennial reign. This is what is ahead of us. This is, this is something that the prophet Zechariah is declaring and detailing. Listen to what he says. Zechariah 14, 16. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Wow, what a revelation. Make sure you understand what's being said here. Let me read it again. Zechariah the prophet was told by God to say this. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, that's all the nations of the earth, which came against Jerusalem, which is an end-time prophecy, shall even go up from year to year during the millennial reign, the 1,000-year millennial reign, year to year, they're going to go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Hmm. Verse 17, and it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth. Now think about it. We know Jesus Christ is our salvation, right? We get it. We're establishing that present truth. But here during the millennium, and it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, whoever doesn't, even upon them shall be no rain. Ooh, you need rain from God to live your crops, right? Because the millennium is going to be totally different than the systems we're living in right now. Believe me, the agricultural, all of it's going to be different under the rule and reign of the Messiah during these thousand years. So now he says in verse 18, and if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. God's going to smite the heathen for not coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles during the millennial reign? Yep, that's what it says. Verse 19, 
This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Is that not clear? When Paul the Apostle, throughout the book of Acts, was hasting to get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Pentecost, he wasn't doing it to go save sinners or to go save saints. He was going to honor the Lord's feasts. Speculation says otherwise. Paul loved the Lord. He knew Torah very, very well. And he knew Torah that existed in the Pentateuch before the Mosaic law ever came. Paul was well studied in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, on the fourth day of creation and what it meant for God's holy days and calling together of assemblies of his people, his saved, called out saints. It wasn't so he could preach to them. It was because he honored the Lord for the feast of the Lord. So, again, we're going to get into another scripture that is oftentimes controversial, okay? And we're going to get into it. We've got to look at everything. But right now, we need to see that everything we're talking about is biblical. The feast of the Lord, the reason why we keep it, the reason why we keep the feast is because God set them in motion before man was ever on the earth. He gave it to Adam. Adam sinned. The boys were giving their offerings. Time went on. The law came. God presented the feast, kept them preserved under the law. The dispensation of the law ended. Christ the Messiah came, a brand new covenant. But that which was preserved under the law was now released into the new covenant church. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church, which you would call a bunch of Gentiles, to keep the feast because he was bringing them back to the original intent or the original intent, the intended eternal purpose of God. It's not for salvation's sake, but notice what happens to the heathen when they don't come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You know the redeemed of the Lord are going to celebrate it during back in Zechariah. So why does he honor the Lord? Because that's what you do when you love God. The feasts are some of the greatest blessings to the believer, and yet through ignorance, whether willingly or just being ignorant, people are robbing God's people from an economy and from an inheritance that is so deeply rich for the spiritual growth and development. And one of the reasons why the church is so sick because they just go on and on without, you know, the Jesus thing. And, uh, you know, not that that's negative or small, it's huge. But they neglect so much other scripture that could be utilized to bring a benefit to them, like the Feast of the Lord. The Feast of the Lord are awesome. Let's talk about it just for a moment before I get into the controversial part. You know, the three major feasts, there are seven feasts total which we talked about, which is Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacles. Okay, so there's seven feasts of the Lord. Three of them are the major ones that the Bible says 
three times in the year, I call all the men up to the feast. Under the Old Testament, it was men 20 years and older, males. In the New Covenant, there is neither male nor female. Everybody gets to come up and celebrate the feast because it's not an obligatory thing. It's not a negative thing if you understand it. It's not under the law thing. It's part of the economy of the kingdom of God. And we hear so many people talking about the economy of the kingdom, and they've neglected one of the biggest economies or parts of that economy, the feast of the Lord. Why do they do that? Because of ignorance, and Satan's a liar, and he deceives people, so we all need correction. We need to grow up into the truth. So some of the mysteries that are unveiled in the feast of the Lord, there are three of them, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Well, we all know that Passover is all about the blood. Passover is all about the Lamb of God. So in Passover, we celebrate Yeshua, Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the shedding of his blood, right? Now I want to ask you a question. If you go into the New Covenant and start studying all the scriptures on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the meaning of that blood, the intrinsic value of that blood, the atoning blood, the redeeming blood, the saving blood. Can you just say, okay, I got it, and it's on, I, I get it now. Or is that blood so significant to your daily walk with God to keep you under the blood, to walk in the blood, to know that you're in a covenant ratified by blood, and all the promises of God are unveiled to you and released to you because of that blood covenant why would anybody not want to remember the blood? Well, Passover is all about Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Passover, the shedding of his blood for deliverance and salvation and all the other goodies. So why not celebrate it? Why not remember it? Why not get that deeper and deeper as the roots go down deeper into that reality? Well, the next major feast was what we call Pentecost. Pentecost was all about the Holy Spirit. When the believers and the disciples and the saints were gathered together in Jerusalem in the upper room, suddenly there came a, a sound of a mighty rushing wind, right? And what happened? That was the introduction or the introducing of the Holy Spirit of God, not outside, but inside of people. So that feast reveals the Holy Spirit. So Passover is about the Son, the S-O-N. Pentecost is about the Spirit. So then who would tabernacles, the third great feast? The Feast of Tabernacles must be about the Father. Hmm. So the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit are to prepare us for an encounter with the Father. God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. The purpose of God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten Son was so that the work of the Son would free us up to be released to go to the Father, but the Spirit is preparing us for that encounter, the Feast of Tabernacles, where the body of Christ become one, the bone of his bone, the flesh of his flesh, and we come to the Father. So in the Feast of the Lord, you have a revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When it comes to our journeying in the Lord, 
we all begin in the outer court. And then we move into the inner court. And then we go into the holy of holies. The outer court is a 30-fold realm. The inner court is a 60-fold realm. The holy of holies is a 100-fold realm. You see the mysteries. You see the mysteries are everywhere connected to the feasts of the Lord. It's consistent. It's biblical. It's not speculation. Mysteries unveil. Everything connects. When we celebrate the feast, we don't do it with the outward observance of things, especially Passover and Pentecost, because we're just looking back to a finished work and to something we have partaken of. We're celebrating these feasts that we have been partakers of. We are the redeemed of the Lord. We are the forgiven. We are the washed. We are the cleansed. We are the renewed. We are the filled with the Holy Spirit. We're producing the fruit of the Spirit. We walk in the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the character of the Spirit. We rejoice in that. There's one feast that has not yet been fulfilled that we're still in rehearsal on, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the ingathering at the end of time, the wedding feast, the marriage of the lamb and the bride, the encounter of the father and his sons, the father and his people, that he will tabernacle among men, that we, uh, it says it throughout all scripture from Corinthians to Revelation, that I will be in them and I will be their God and I will, you know, they, I will be their tabernacle. It's, it's all scriptural. We have a flesh body. That's kind of outer court, 30-fold shedding of the blood. We have a soul where the Spirit of God is cleansing our soul in the, in the, in the, uh, in the inner court, okay? Uh, the showbread is there. The light is on. The lamps are lit. You know, all, we're either, that's a work of the Spirit going on in our soul. So our bodies, and then we have a soul that God's ministering to by the Spirit. And then our spirit, our born-again spirit, our new creation spirit is becoming, growing, and being conformed in the very image of the firstborn son so that we might have relationship with the father like he had with the son. It's all connected to the feast of the Lord. So does God have an economy? And I speak to all the kingdom people out there. Does God have an economy? Is there a kingdom economy? Yes. Why are we flushing out of God's economy what he wanted on the fourth day of creation for a perpetual time, set times, fixed times, definite purpose in these times, set solemn feasts, festivals, fixed appointments, why are we flushing that out of the economy of God? I know and you know that my salvation of being saved by grace through faith is through Jesus Christ. I know that. I'm not in doubt. I'm not in a lack of faith. I don't have an evil heart of unbelief or a lack of assurance of my salvation. But I, the last time I read my Bible, I was saved by grace and I was translated out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, 
into the kingdom of his dear son. I was once an orphan, but I've been adopted into the family of God. So now that I've been saved and brought into the economy of heaven, I now need to learn God's ways. What's wrong with that? And when I look at the feasts created on the fourth day, during the thousand-year millennium, on Zechariah, the whole world better come and celebrate or they get no rain or they get the plague. I mean, we're going to be celebrating the feast during the entire millennium. Definitely the Feast of Tabernacles. But I have a sense that we're going to see the Lamb of God forever. It's always going to be known to us that our salvation was through the shed blood of the Lamb. We're going to be so filled with the Spirit, there's not going to be any blemish in us. There's not going to be any darkness in us. We are going to be wise virgins so filled with the golden oil of the Holy Ghost. And then we're going to be in constant relationship with the Father throughout eternity. And my God, what happens after the millennium? Well, the book of Enoch says we go into the eternal eighth day. There's so much. And yet the church, for the most part, they celebrated Easter with bunny rabbits. There's nothing wrong with Easter, by the way. If you look up the word Easter in the book of Acts where they were going to kill Peter after Easter, it means Passover, Pesach. No big deal. The Ishtar and the Oster, these are pagan holidays that counterfeit Passover and Easter. And, you know, people get into all different kinds of stuff like that. But the church did abandon the Feast of the Lord, and they got into Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, Halloween, God forbid, or any other of these things. The big one being Christmas. Unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. If we would have kept the feasts, and, in, and not looked at them as obligatory under the law of Moses, but something that existed before Moses ever walked on the earth or any other man, if we would have understood that God has a purpose for the feasts, we would have been doing it all along. And do you know, we have been hosting the Feast of Tabernacles for, this will be our 32nd year. I mean, I've been a pastor coming up on 30 years, but at home, Pastor R. Paul Carroll, my pastor in the church, he got a revelation of the Feast of the Lord in 1986. 1986, he rented out Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, California, and he didn't understand at all what he was doing. He just knew that there was supposed to be a big festival in the seventh month. He was thinking it was in July because in the Gregorian calendar. So he rented out the whole stadium to have booths everywhere because it's also known as the Feast of Booths. And all the churches from Mexico and California were to come, and all they did was get angry. Who are you to do such a thing? And he was just operating out of an epiphany, not realizing that the seventh month is a Hebrew month of Tishri, which gets you into September, October. So, but he started it, and we all were starting to think about it. What does it mean? And how holy is it? What does it mean to God? And here we've been, and I want to tell you something. I've never once before the living God, I have never once walked away from a Feast of Tabernacles regretting that I hosted it or partook in it. Never once. I saw people that would travel from different places come together for a week, sometimes 10 days. Some people would come for a few days. And I watched people's lives change in an environment that was uh, hosted unto the Lord. Prepared unto the Lord, the feast of the Lord. I have witnessed this. I never became a, a, uh, um, a legalist. 
I never put on anything that made me go Jewish. I never, I never did any of that. Because I know in the economy of the new covenant, there is neither Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. I know that. I've learned that. I know what the Spirit says, what the Word says. But I've never, ever, ever got into legalism. I've never got into any, you got to do this. You gotta. All I'm saying is that these things exist biblically, and they are available for the body of Christ. And my experience is when people gather together to celebrate the Feast of the Lord, there is an anointing. It breaks yokes and changes lives. That's all I'm saying. Now, somebody would refer to this passage. Let's go to it. Here's a controversial passage, and it's found in Colossians. So let's go to Colossians chapter 2. And to be fair, let's read, and I'll start in verse 11. So let's go back to verse 8. I could read the whole thing, actually. I like this, though. Let's go back to verse 8. Colossians 2.8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, follow the traditions we gave you. So tradition is not all evil. And I'll show you that in Thessalonians in just a little bit. But he said, beware of philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, like Christmas and stuff like that, maybe. Uh, After the rudiments of the world, okay? Watch out for that stuff and not after Christ. So you want everything to come out of Christ concerning your life, not out of the world, the roots, the rudiments, and all of that stuff. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Wow. So all the fullness is in him. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So you are, and I am, complete in Christ. Not going to be, you are. And that word complete is the play row, and it means to make full, to make replete, to cram, to level up, to furnish, to finish, to accomplish perfect. You are perfect in Christ. You are complete in him. That's what the word says. I'm good with that. And I'm catching up to that reality, and so are you. But it is a finished work. We get that. So you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Hey, hallelujah. There is no other principality and power that's above Christ. Praise God you're on the right team, right? Verse 11. In whom also, in Christ Jesus, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in Christ you're circumcised. Hey, there's a spiritual part of circumcision. It used to be the outward form of cutting the foreskin off of the private parts. Well, but in Christ, it's a circumcision, but it's not made with men's hands. It's spiritual, just like the feast of the Lord. Our spiritual, spiritual, spiritual for spiritual people. Paul said he was a spiritual man. Now, verse 12 says, that concerning us, buried with him in baptism. 
wherein also you are risen with him. Not will be, you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So we are complete in him. We are circumcised in him. We are buried with him through baptism. We are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. And the Bible actually says in Ephesians 2 that you're seated with him in heavenly places. So when Christ ascended, you ascended with him and are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2. This is all done. This is the work of Christ. So let's go on. Verse 13, and you and I and all, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh nature, your human nature, has he quickened together with him, made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So you and I are forgiven for everything we've ever done contrary to God. We are forgiven. We are established in this present truth. No problem. Here we go. Verse 14, here's how he did it. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. The law of God blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So someone says, see, the law has been nailed to the cross, but the feast existed before the law. Let's talk about it. Let's be very clear about it. And then, of course, the law is established by the New Covenant Church. We'll get into that, too, if we need to. So he goes on and he says, he spoiled principalities in verse 15. Powers, he spoiled them. Wow, because he nailed everything to the cross. So he spoiled it. So the condemnation, the accusation, the slander against us is gone. He spoiled the principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it or in the cross he triumphed over all of it and then verse 16 let and this is the controversial verse let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. That's it. That's what it says, that you, you shouldn't let anybody judge you in these things about what you eat, what you drink, respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So the, the idea here, as I understand it, is we are the body of Christ. We're the 42nd generation. We are the body of Christ. There's no doubt about that. We are in Christed. Christ in us, the hope of glory, us in Christ. So we are the body of Christ. It's been that way for two millennial days, 2,000 years. We're the 42nd generation. We're in a 2,000-year generation right now, known as the Christ generation. 
42nd generation. Oh, thank you, babe. I forgot all about that. I won't. All right, so I'll finish this up and I'll put this out there. <laughs> all right, so now these things. So here's where people say things like, well, there you have it. You don't have to keep the feast. You don't have to have a holy day. You don't have to keep a Sabbath, a new moon. You don't have to do anything. Just let, but all it really says, let no man therefore judge you. Now, to understand that, you've got to go to Romans 14, don't you? So let's go to Romans chapter 14 to get more perspective on the word of what he's saying. All right? I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to judge anybody. Okay? I'm only looking at things. Romans 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats herbs. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 